Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, welcome everyone. We are continuing through what was originally a year through the New Testament, which then kind of became a year through Romans. <laughs> but we're, <laughs> we're done with Romans now and we're in a first Corinthian. So uh, like, a, like a freight train, we are heading through things. So we're continue. We're going to be in letters, I guess, until we get to Revelation. Uh, so we're letters of the Bible. We've learned a little bit how to read letters. I'm sure we'll we'll spend more time on like what's actually happening in letters. But uh, what what are we going to expect over the next few weeks as we go through First Corinthians? Yeah, well, you you kind of laid it out there already that we're, we're beginning to enter into the heart of the New Testament and the New Testament letters. And this is one of the more classic letters, and of course, one of the more popular ones. Of course, especially because of what it gets into with spiritual gifts and the love chapter. Uh, and the resurrection chapter. And let me kind of throw this out here to begin with. And that is, I want you, the listeners, to to give us the freedom to say things that you may not agree with. You know, one of the things that's happening more and more and more, Vinny, right, is that we're becoming more and more polarized in mm-hmm. our churches and our culture, politically and things like that. And it's, it's now like the left and the right can't even get along and talk to each other at all. No. And What's happening is there's so many podcasts out there. There's so many blog posts out there. There's so many resources out there for news and information and Bible studies that we just gravitate to the one, well, this guy or this person always says what I like, and I'll just stick with that one. And we never get the opportunity to kind of really understand critically and evaluate our own thoughts. Reality is we don't have it all right. We don't have it all together. So sometimes we're going to say things as we go through 1 Corinthians. I know you and I aren't going to agree on everything. Mm -hmm. And as we go through that, we want the listener to say, all right, let me listen to this. Uh, I don't think I agree with that one. Oh, I don't know if I agree with it, but I'm going to think about that for the next six months. And just be allow us to have that opportunity and that freedom to say what we think is happening in the scriptures and uh, what, what that might mean for us today and process that with us without kind of like discarding us and finding the one podcast that says everything that you want to say. Well, it, you know, this is probably a good way to set the trajectory for especially for this book i mean we're going to see how paul really is interested in unity right and, and we see that yeah. in every letter that he has yeah, even yeah. whether he uses the word unity or not right. romans i don't remember that he used the word unity maybe in chapter 12 but that's the point of the letter starting from chapter one and two like he's talking about that and as you were talking about how even with politically we have left and right and you don't the goal is to not agree right? you create your position say okay you believe this obviously i need to take the opposite side right. it's like a debate or something and Man, I'm thinking back to you know twenty something years ago when George W. Bush was running for president. He had this the, the first time he ran. He had the saying where he would say, "I'm a uniter, not a divider." Mm-hmm. And I remember how I mean, this is pre nine eleven and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's he that was like a very appealing saying mm-hmm. to people because it was like on both sides. It was like, oh wow, yeah, we want that to be. Yeah. We want things to be united. Whereas. 20 years removed yeah it's like right. if someone were to say that it like that's not a virtue that's a that's a vice yeah <laughs> put it on yeah. the vice list right yeah and uh and, yeah. and so th- theologically and, and from a religious and ecclesiological standpoint our churches we do the same thing it's it's about being divided and you're defined by how you divide you don't seek unity and that's actually a vice that's not a virtue yeah. and so i'm sure that kind of stuff is going to come up in the in the book as well yeah and not just this book but as we it, continue yeah, on yeah, to all the, the letters all the other ones, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, let's consider it this way. The letters are, we said that before, they're occasional documents. They're written yes. at a specific time in a specific place for a specific audience for a specific it's a situational purpose. thing. Yeah, yeah there's mm-hmm. situations. There's some occasion that's caused the, the writing of this letter. And what you see in them is the fact that they had lots of problems. Mm-hmm. I mean, from the very, very beginning of the church, there were lots of problems. Mm-hmm. We saw this in Acts, of course, in chap- chapter six, that we're already dividing over the widows of certain uh, uh, widows being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. This conflict, it's just part of the church is who it is. And so Paul is dealing with a lot of stuff. And uh, I'm just, I'm just glad I'm not Paul. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, that you mentioned that because we oftentimes have one of those cliche things like, if you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. Yeah, yeah you know, right. and, and that sort of thing. But part of it is the expectation that there's this perfect church, and it's it's an ignorance of church history to know that, like, no, you you have conflict in churches, yeah. and the idea is to say, what is our unity found in? And if it is found in Christ by means of the gospel, 
we should expect that there will be conflict. The problem is, wh whereas the world does not resolve conflict, they, they do go to war. Mm -hmm. The believer, whether Jew or Gentile, whether male or female, whether slave or free, the thing is, no, we see what we're united in. If we are in Christ, we'll just use Galatians 3 language, then we're all heirs to the offspring. Therefore, we can have unity. And yeah. so we should expect differences, socioeconomic, gender, you know, uh, ethnic, those sorts yeah. of things. There will be differences, but that's okay because that's not what defines us. Yeah, yeah. Hey, would you say that one of the problems that we have today with reading Paul and, and any of the New Testament is that we're too quickly to try to read it and say, what does this mean for me? Or tr immediately try to go into application? Yeah, to some extent, I think that's certainly the problem. I think a lot of the Bible studies out there, uh, the popular Bible studies, they try to get behind the context and the setting of the letters. They recognize the fact that, well, we have to understand what this letter meant at this day and time and then apply it to today. But they often do so by starting like, well, what's the date and the time and place of the writing and who are the recipients? And the problem is, is that the, there are much more significant issues out there than simply those things. I think some of the greater issues are understanding the, the larger Greco-Roman world and the Greco-Roman context of the first century world, um, politically, socially, economically, religiously. The, but that stuff is not easily available for many people. Mm -hmm. So many of the Bible studies, they just, they just don't have access to that. So that's why they, I think they ultimately come up short. But I think, yeah, the idea of you know jumping to what it means for us today without properly understanding its ancient context is certainly a serious issue. But I think that's one of the places that we start at uh, making a mistake. And that's also probably part of the problem of this false idea that all I need is the Bible and the Holy Spirit. And he's going to tell me everything I need to do about everything. Like I'm, I'm going to be this infallible interpreter if I read the Bible and having that sort of expectation where it's like, no, you, you could still affirm sola scriptura, but you could deny solo scriptura. It's not just that the Bible is going to tell you everything you right. need to know. As you said, use the word Greco-Roman context. Paul or whoever we're reading, they're writing in a time where they're assuming the uh, the original audience knows certain yeah. things. Yeah. So th that he doesn't have to fill in the blanks on that where we don't live in that period. So we right. need to get those filled in. Yeah. Yeah. Another way of describing it, I think we might have said this before, that when you read a letter of the New Testament, it's like listening to a phone call where mm -hmm. you're only listening to one end. So you walk in the house, finishing, your wife's on the phone, and you immediately realize, oh, that because she said this and this and this, oh, she's talking to so-and-so. Mm -hmm. And, oh, and such and such is happening in so-and-so's life because you were aware of what's going on. You don't know exactly what the other person on the other end is, uh, is talking about. And then after a few minutes, you might go, oh, maybe maybe she's talking to this person, actually. You know, So you're, you're constantly trying to figure out what's going on because you're only listening to one side of the conversation. Well, in 1 Corinthians, we're going to get to this in a few weeks, but Paul is responding to a letter that they wrote to him. And we mm -hmm. don't have mm -hmm. that letter. Nope. We know, he says... Now concerning the things that you wrote about. So he's clearly got the, their letter in front of him. But we don't know what their letter says other than the fact, well, Paul says this, so their letter must say that. And that becomes problematic. So we have to be really careful about this uh, also. Yeah, just to give a illustration on your first point about the, the phone call, uh, my wife is Portuguese, so yeah. first generation American. And so this happened to me one time where I'm I'm in this office and I'm here overhearing her talking on the phone. And oftentimes when she talks with her mom, she'll, you know, have, they'll have like Spanglish where you kind of go in and out of Spanish and English. Oh, okay. So they have that with Portuguese too, where they kind of like go in and out. And uh, she, she, she always does that with her mom. Okay. And so she's doing that. So I'm assuming she's talking to her mom, but she's talking like really aggressive. And I'm like, my girl, like, I'm thinking like, how are you talking to your mom this way? You normally don't. And, and so when she got off the phone, I go out there and I'm like, babe, like, what was wrong with your mom? Why were you talking to her that way? And she was like, oh, no, I was talking to my sister. Uh, I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense then. And I could just go <laughs> like that. But 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 assuming you know what's going on and that who the the audience member is, you could come to one conclusion. And I think we do that when you don't know the other background, especially in a letter, you might come to just a vastly different conclusion because you're looking for the wrong thing, you're asking the wrong questions, you're assuming the wrong thing. Yeah. And I think we're totally gonna see this in First Corinthians. Yeah, yeah. No question about it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, hey, so we try to do that with these podcasts. We right. we set the biblical text in their context, in, the, in their ancient context. So, you know, we just want to make sure that we're not assuming that their ancient context looks exactly like ours. The fancy word is being anachronistic, where you're looking yeah. back in time and assuming that the past is like what it is for us. Yeah, yeah. this is 
it's kind of natural, of course, to suppose this, especially if you don't know any better. I suppose that maybe our effort to make the gospel relevant to the world or whatever, we've ended up reading our world into the gospel world and kind of making a mistake of that. And we talked a little bit in our Roman study that uh, Martin Luther did that. He read mm -hmm. Paul in light of the conflict that he was having with, with the Roman Catholic Church at the time. So um, I think it's a major problem that we read and assume that their culture is like our culture. And, and this is especially what happened for me as a, as a young man growing up in the church. For many years, I was very much influenced by, you know, kind of our, our modern Western understanding of things. And our modern Western understanding of things says there's absolute truth. And I was concluded that, well, because Jesus is that truth, he's the source of truth, we now know what all absolute truths are. And then I, I, I literally remember thinking this, that because I think the correct way, because mm -hmm. I know who Jesus is and I get truth from him, that Jesus must have thought like I did. And mm -hmm. Paul must have thought like I did. Then I go off to get my postgraduate degrees, which are in biblical studies. And I began learning more about the Greco-Roman culture or the ancient Near Eastern culture. And by the way, the Greco-Roman culture is the setting for the New Testament. The ancient Near Eastern culture is the setting for what we call the, our, our Old Testament. And I began realizing, oh, they didn't think like we do. I mean, they thought like people in the first century did, and that's not the way we do. And I really honestly didn't know what to do for a period of time like that. Mm. So I think um, that we as a church can simply do a much better job of just really proclaiming the gospel, and it's called a radical discipleship, and understand the fact that, yeah, and what that looks like for them might be something different than what it looks like for us. Yeah, for sure. So as we turn to 1 Corinthians, then, what are some of the historical and cultural backgrounds that we need to know in order to understand this specific book? We we did this the same sort of thing in the book of Romans. So this is something that we're, we're already kind of familiar with it doing. Yeah, exactly. So much of what we discussed in our study of the Gospels is important here. We, we kind of set a little bit of the Roman context, the Greco-Roman context, especially the economic context. Uh, if you recall our, our interview with, with Warren Carter that aired on May 3rd, 2022, depends on what year you're listening to this. And Dr. Carter really helped us that, you know, 90% of the Roman world were living off daily subsistence. They, they were hand to mouth. There was uh, maybe 3% of the Roman world that were elites, the powerful elites. And there's like maybe 7% that were doing okay. They had enough to live off for today. Maybe they had two merchant fleets and things of that nature, but they weren't they weren't even what we would call middle class. They were still lower class and poor, but they were not worried about where their food was going to come from tomorrow. And they probably even ate meat from time to time, things of that nature there. The way the world operated, and this is so significant, obviously for understanding Jesus and the Gospels, but even the New Testament, was that you simply showed honor to those who are above you, to those mm -hmm. who are honored. The idea being that if you show them honor, then they'll give you something in return. Mm -hmm. Now, that's what happens when you're, when you're the poor and the marginalized. Now, the reality is, however, you don't show honor to those who are poor and marginalized because it's simply not going to get you anything in return. They don't have enough food for themselves. They're simply not going to be able to share with you today. Uh, they have nothing to honor you. And of course, if you are an elite, then you show honor across to the other one, elites, to the other elites. And obviously, and there's still a hierarchy within them, right? Sure. Jesus tells a parable about, you know, knowing this, the, your order at the, at the dinner table, where, where you sit at. And if you sit at the wrong place and somebody comes in more powerful or more honorable than you, and everyone knows who's who, then you're going to get booted to the door. Mm -hmm. uh, that idea. So you don't you don't show honor uh, to the marginalized and the poor. It's not going to get you anything there. So um, it's this hierarchical structure. So you have a hierarchical type of structure, but not necessarily... Um... In, I mean, because we have a hierarchical structure in a way, in, even in America now, yes, we do. But, but this is probably more polarized and yes. more defined and people are more accepting of the, the category they're in, whatever side of the equation you're on. Whereas in the American dream, that tells you, you can build up and work your way up, you know, to that upper echelon. Like if I'm 90, you know, 90 uh, to 97% of the population, this is just like, it's probably fatalistic. This is just what it is. Oh, oh, yeah. But here's the thing. And that's this. The 90% the of the population are worried about food for today. And, yeah. And not even food for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And their ability to get that food actually depended upon them following the way the systems works. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is especially going to be the case in the book of Revelation when we get there yeah. uh, also. But this, the reality, I know it's in, in the American context, we have a hierarchical structure. Okay, that whatever it is, right? But the reality is you can... 
you know, assuming all things are fair and that you got a, you know, an adequate education, you could make yourself something. Yeah. Uh, and you don't have to necessarily, you know, um, kiss up to somebody else or do some of those. You, you could, you could do it and you can get kind of get by. Now it doesn't hurt if you can suck up to somebody else here or there or what, whatever. But in that system, you do not, you, you mm -hmm. cannot get by. Uh, you cannot survive. You you cannot participate in the society, the socioeconomic culture, unless you are recognizing the Roman gods, unless you are playing the, the political, religious, economic system. And so the elites are the elites. And if you don't recognize them and give them honor, whatever, you will pay for this. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. this is a much more um, imposing and significant system within their cultural context than it would be for us. Yeah, and it's either class. you're you're either the elite or you're not. You're not really a middle yes. class. No, there's there's no such thing as a middle class. Understanding this, of course, is is extremely important for much of the New Testament. We'll give an example in First Peter on how people misunderstand what's happening with women and Peter's statement about women in First Peter three, but it's extremely important for our understanding of First Corinthians. Mm -hmm. So, why do you think it's uh, important then that we we really grasp that concept? Uh, in first Corinthians, because one of the things that we miss when we, you know, we do our popular Bible studies, you know, when did Paul write this letter to whom did he write it? What was going on in Corinth? We miss the significance of the fact that there was apparently a very wealthy group of elite men, probably those who were honored within the society that were causing many of the problems in Corinth. Now we know from first, from, um, first Corinthians chapter one, let's look, look at first Corinthians chapter one, verse 26, where Paul says, uh, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters, that not many of you were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty and not many noble. Ah, and it goes on to say, you know, God's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Uh, hey, most of you guys were lower class, lower echelon, poor, marginalized, not having power. Mm -hmm. That, however, means some of you were. When he says not many of you were, he means some of you were, mm -hmm. but most mm -hmm. of you were not. Uh, and so there is this uh, well-to-do class. And I think this is the passage uh, we're going to discuss uh, communion, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're not aware, when most churches do communion and they recite, you know, this is my body, mm -hmm. and they do all that, they're actually speaking from 1 Corinthians 11 yep. more than they are from the Gospels. Uh, and so Paul kind of repeats what Jesus does and the words of institution for communion. They're more often taken from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 17 through 22, it's really clear that this powerful elite group of individuals were causing not only divisions amongst the poor, but were abusing. I guess the way to say it would be this. The poor were out working because that's what they had to do on a daily basis to get food. The rich did not work. They, they, mm -hmm. they own land. They imposed taxes. Pomp and circumstance were out there and they kind of participated in that. So if there's mm -hmm. a festivity there, yeah. they showed up and they got their honor. They, that's what they did. So they're at home. I think the church is probably meeting in one of these homes. Uh, they're at home and they're eating and drinking and getting drunk and fat before the poor even come in. This is 1 Corinthians 11 verses 17 and following. And Paul just like strongly rebukes them. says, you guys have homes to eat for yourselves. You know, go eat there. But yet you dishonor and, and, and shame those who have nothing. And, and even says, by the way, your meetings do more harm than good. Mm. There was not just problems in the church and division in the church. The meetings of this congregation was actually more harmful than it was good. And I think this is a serious problem. So we've talked about patronage in a way we, we mm -hmm. like you mentioned, we talked about that with uh, Dr. Carter. You've defined that in terms of like, it's, it's doing something for someone who could do something for you yeah. and not necessarily going down the totem pole on that. So this is a huge issue then in terms of these rich uh, folks involved in this local congregation and especially in a chapter 11, why Paul is admonishing them. Yes. Patrons was a significant factor in the city of Corinth and city and Corinth was actually well known for its patrons. So a patron is a wealthy, influential person who took on maybe individuals or maybe even a whole family. And that whole family of those individuals were known as clients. The clients then would be provided with you know, land and jobs and money and maybe even legal protections. And then in return, the clients would offer them services. They would serve mm -hmm. you. And the more clients you have, the more prestigious your clients are, the more honorable and the more noble you are. You work your way up this, uh, in the system this way. The clients then were indebted to the patrons. So remember the story in Luke 16, that mm -hmm. most difficult parable um, in which um, this manager 
the the owner says, "Hey, uh, you've been you, you've been uh, dipping in the in the pocketbook a little bit too much, and uh, uh, I'm gonna you're gonna lose your job in a few days." And so the guy says, "Oh no, what am I gonna do?" So he goes to one of the guys and says, "Hey, how much do you owe my master? Oh, I owe him a hundred bushels. Okay, great, make it eighty. And then he goes to another one and says, "Hey, how much do you owe? Oh, make it fifty, a hundred. He says, "Well, make it fifty. And what he did was he said that man the manager then said, "When I lose my job, these two guys now owe me because I cut them a deal." And so it's, it, this is simply the, the way the system works. So the patrons then were powerful figures. They were very powerful figures and they had significant influence within the city. And they were the ones who were, who were honored. So, and I think it's these wealthy elite men that are causing the problems in the church in Corinth. Hmm. Do you suspect that these, these guys were having trouble with the gospel and the, these new freedoms and privileges they had, especially more so than women and others were having? Yes, I, new think identity. This, I think this is the entire point. And that is when you start recognizing what the gospel says, Jesus and Luke 6, I just it says, give without mm. expecting anything in return. Yeah. Like, uh, how do how do I do that? If I start giving, you know, give to the one who asks of you. Well, the one who asks of me is the poor, but they're not going to give me anything back. So this isn't going to be a fair shake here. Uh, I think, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm baffled with. How in the world, like Theophilus, as we discussed when we did the Gospel of Luke, how these wealthy elite men and leaders within the Roman world, how they reconciled the teachings of Jesus with mm-hmm. their cultural, socioeconomic, religious, political system. I, I don't know how it was done. And I think they were wrestling with this, too. And so when all of a sudden Paul is giving um, or the Gospels giving and Paul and others are giving authority to women, they can pray and prophesy in church. I mean, Acts 2 says, I'm going to pour out my spirit on on your young men and your young women and your sons and on your daughters. And we know that women were prominent individuals in these churches. I think the men are going, um, I can't retain my status Mm -hmm. if I follow these protocols. So how about this? Let's go ahead and say, I got an idea. This is first Corinthians chapter 11, which we'll get to. I got an idea. Let's say women can pray and prophesy, but they got to wear a head covering and the head covering shows that they're subordinate to men. That's what we'll do. And so they're doing these things to say, well, we want to go ahead and follow Jesus things, but we're having problems kind of reconciling that and being able to retain our status. By the way, there's all kinds of ways we can do this in terms of justifying this. And that is, well, if I retain my status, then I can continue to contribute to the church and fund the ministries of the church. See? Mm -hmm. And and we do the, it's like, well, that's true, but am I compromising the gospel in order to accomplish this kind of this good end. Mm-hmm. Let me kind of go ahead and give a little bit more context also on Corinth and what's happening there. So Corinth was the capital city of the Roman province of, Ach- of Achaia, uh, uh, the southern part of modern-day Greece. The population was you know, between 80,000 and 130,000. Its location, if you have a map, by the way, it's, there's an isthmus, which is a strip of land, uh, that has water on two sides. It's a narrow strip of land and it connects two other parts of land. So if you look at the at Greece and then the southern part of, of Greece is a peninsula. That peninsula is, is connected with this small little isthmus, uh, the small little strip of land. And Corinth was on that isthmus, kind of at the, at the height of the mountain on, on that isthmus. And what that means is that trade and travel from the Aegean Sea, which would be on the east side of Greece, to the Adriatic Sea, which would be the west side of Greece. And the Adriatic Sea leads us to Rome. So trade that's going to go through there, if it's coming from the Adriatic, from the Aegean Sea, let's say it's coming from Thessalonica up in the, up in the north, it was easier to take it down to the Isthmus and get the stuff off the ships there, roll it across the narrow strip of land, like five miles long, and put on another ship on the other side and then sail off into the Adriatic Sea. That was actually easier than going around that peninsula of modern-day Greece. Wow. So as a result of that, you have a lot of trade going through the Corinth and, and that area there. Uh, a lot of trade, a lot of, a lot of um, sailors who have a one-night stay in the city. Yep. Uh, so tomorrow you might get back on your ship and go back to Thessalonica and kind of get some more goods to sell, to sell back to Rome uh, very commonly. So uh, the city was made of... Um, a small number of elite individuals and, and their families that control the entire power and wealth of the city. Hmm. The church, as I mentioned before, then was made up of some of these elites, but mostly non-elites, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 26. Not many of you were wise or powerful or, or, or of noble birth. Uh, 
Uh, and then in Romans 16, by the way, this is really interesting. Romans 16, 23. So in Romans 16, now here's the thing to remember. The book of Romans was written from Corinth. That's pretty well established. There's not, much, not many questions there. Paul's writing from Corinth and he hasn't been to Rome yet. And he's writing the book of Romans saying, hey guys, I'm coming, I'm coming your way. And he says in verse 23 of Romans 16, he says, Gaius has been a host to me and to the whole church. He greets you. So there you go. One of the wealthier individuals mm -hmm. in the city in whom the whole church met in his home. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Quartus, the brother. Now, here's the thing. I don't know, I don't know if you know this or not, Vinny, but there's a, a street in Corinth there. And I actually was going to get you the picture and put it up on the on the screen so you, at least you could see it, even mm -hmm. though everyone else is listening by a podcast. And I just didn't do it beforehand. There's an inscription on one of the streets in Corinth, and it says, Erastus. Yeah. The city treasurer mm -hmm. built this street. Mm -hmm. The date of that street dates to the first century. So mm -hmm. very likely the same Erastus. And the idea of that is, is I'll put the street in for you and then you make me city treasurer. Now, mm -hmm. whether it happened in that order or not, but the point of that is that's how it worked. The wealthy elites would do things for the city or for the citizens of the city to kind of help make, make economy better. I'm just gonna make this thing. And then you give me the honor and the taxation and the things that I need so I can get this, this city position, the city post. Uh, now, there are other elites, of course. Some of them could have been women. We don't know who they are. But what we, what we don't respect enough is the fact that the New Testament's granting slaves, you, you know, you quoted Galatians 3.28 earlier, granting slaves, women, and the poor equal status with men. Mm -hmm. It kind of sounds like, oh, that's so awesome. Well, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor female nor female, we're all one in Christ Jesus. I mean, we quote that in our churches, but even in our modern day churches, there's not equality. But that is going to be a major problem, I think, for some of these we, uh, wealthy elite men. And this it's, it's, this is revolutionary, by the way. The Christian gospel was radically revolutionary. And I think for the elites, it was very problematic in their social world, the world in which they did business, the hosting of meals, uh, the fact that they go to meals, they go to the gymnasiums. All these things is immersed in this world of the elites. And so if they're like uh, in the gymnasium, like, hey, dude, what's going on with you guys? I heard a whole bunch of women were, were praying and prophesying in your church. You know, what, what are you guys doing over there? Mm -hmm. Eventually, it's going to come back to really to haunt them. And so it's not just a matter of um, kind of changing the rules of the game so that we can kind of bring people up to our standard of level, but treating them as equals and... That's going to cause all kinds of problems, I think, for the church in Corinth. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. And hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor. If this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know, five stars if you think it's five star worthy, uh, share it with your friends. And we just want to get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we want to encourage and equip people with. So do that, help us out. And now we'll get back to the podcast. Yeah, I, I was just thinking about that as you were talking. There's a lot of fear that goes in along with mm -hmm. with that. It's it's fear based largely. Like this is something new. There's that position of power that I'm going to have to give up because there's only the pie is only so big. And if I had the size pie, <laughs> now I'm gonna have to give it up to someone else, right? And the only thing I could really think of, not the only thing, but the, the thing that pops into my mind. I mean, we're both sports fans. Yeah. A little. When, when, a little bit, yeah. yeah. I may or may not have a baseball game on on the TV right now as we watch. Uh, I'm ADD, man. I have to have multiple Your team things going has on. has no chance, dude. They, they don't. They're awful, the but they might win a game. In, in they, April. they win once a week, and so I I, I don't want to miss that them. often. Maybe every, every couple certainly weeks. more than the Raiders win. My, I was going to say my my football team doesn't win <laughs> once a week. <laughs> but if yeah. my baseball team could win once a week, that'd the be Raiders great. Raiders are really good for three quarters. They were great, <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. And you moved to Phoenix, and all of a sudden the Cardinals beat my guys. But yeah. anyway, uh, but I'm thinking of like what happened with baseball in the was it 1940s with someone like a Jackie Robinson, mm -hmm. where. It, you have just a cultural issue that people are having to come up. Yeah. And this isn't purely analogous, right? But you have similarities where you have, we grew up in a certain way where we just saw classes of people in yeah. different ways. And then, so right off the bat, there's just this cultural thing. Like, wait a minute, you're telling me black people, a black guy can play baseball now at the major league level with everyone else. But then on top of that, so there's just that, that thing you're dealing with. But then on top of that, there's gotta be the real fear. And I'm not valid. I'm not like, 
like validating the fear in terms of like it's good it's just it is a fear for guys yeah. saying mm-hmm. well if jackie robinson's gonna play i forget what position he played but if he's gonna play whatever position that means i don't i might not get to play it and mm-hmm. it, it means i'm i might have to give up my roster spot for this guy as well and it, it compounds that problem uh for hate to and fear to, to develop up so i'm sure you know not to give uh credence to the the quality of the fear and saying yeah it's good that they you know but i would understand why they would have that fear yeah yeah and it makes sense and yeah. i'm not gonna pretend like i would do any better like you know that's I, right yeah and, and i really try to read both the gospels and by the way my a's just did win a game but <laughs> I, I really truly try to, to read the gospels and paul's letters not assuming i would have been on the right side of the equation there i'm assuming i'm the knucklehead who would have been bucking against that and i'm the one who would have had to have years of correction before i got it yeah, and I'll tell you right now, that's an extremely good place uh, to start from, but it's also one that's really, really difficult to do. Yeah. We've said this before, and let's say it again. When you read, let's say, applying this to the letters, when you read the letters, don't assume I'm on Team Paul. Yep. Go ahead, Paul. You tell them, those knuckleheads, how could they have done that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't believe these churches were so corrupt. Instead of going, okay, what is Paul saying? And now how does how does this have application to me in terms of, what do I need to fix? What do I need to change? Mm-hmm. And yeah, you hit it right on the head. This is exactly the situation. And very commonly, we just we read the Gospels and go, those Pharisees, they, I can't believe they would do these things. Like, we, we do them all the time. Yeah. When I think about it, like, I would have been one of the disciples. I would have been Peter, except That's for right. when he denied Jesus. I wouldn't have done that. But, you no, know, it's no, like, no, like no. all of us are the ideal disciple. All yeah. of us are the ideal whoever. It's like, no, yeah. why would we give ourselves that much credit? That's right. Yeah. The Bible is full of, from Genesis to Revelation, writings to those who don't deserve that much credit. Yeah. And then we read it and go, yeah, but I'm better than that. Yeah. Jeremiah, you tell them because those people are really bad. It's (laughs) like, yeah, not, not me. You know, know, Sodom was your sister, right? And and you're worse than Sodom. Yeah. Yeah. You tell them. And then of course, oh, look at our churches and go, yeah, guys, we haven't figured it out a whole lot better. (laughs) Not, not at all. Yeah. So I have a question as we move through the text a little bit now. One of the things that we haven't really addressed in reading letters, and I, I know we're going to focus on it in Galatians because it's mm-hmm. you have to understand this in order to understand what's happening in, in Galatians 1 especially. But ancient letters, you know, Paul, these guys, they didn't invent letter writing in right. the ancient world. Most letters are small. So most letters are going to read like a first John or a Philemon or something mm-hmm. like that. So to have these Romans and first Corinthians, it's amazing that that those sorts of things would be produced. But even for a small letter, you're going to find a certain structure yeah. where it's going to, it's going to start with a greeting. It's going to have a Thanksgiving period. And usually the, the person you're writing to the more you want to even if you, i guess if you want to look at it from a patronage standpoint you're you're going to want to pour on thanksgiving to this person in a sense to 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 really you know puff, puff up the situation or, or just show your you know your gratitude for them uh, you're going to have the body of the letter and then you're going to have the, your greetings at the end of the letter that's generally like you know how how uh, New Testament letters are going to be constructed. And so what we'll see in Galatians is that like Paul omits the Thanksgiving portion, yeah, which right, yeah, which yeah. if I'm hearing this from a first century, if I'm, if I'm one of the churches in Galatia, I'm going to be like, oh my gosh, this is a gasp section where he goes from his greeting immediately to the body. He doesn't include a Thanksgiving. That's telling something mm-hmm. great. Right. This is an interesting letter because we know that in 1 Corinthians, we have a, a, a first Corinthians 13. We have these love passages, that sort of thing, but it very much is a letter that is condemning. It is calling things out by situation specifically. This is interesting because I, in the Thanksgiving period that we find, like starting in verse four, I don't get that. If, if I don't know what's happening yet in first Corinthians, the way he greets this congregation yeah. is like he gives thanks to God because of the grace God has given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in spiritual gift. And you who wait at the reveling of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship. You have all these things and it's, even in the beginning in chapter in verse two to the church of god that is in corinth to those sanctified in christ jesus they're, they're called to be saints i'm reading this like i'm expecting to read a philippians or a first thessalonians or this where you're, where you're seeing this great congregation who things are going well and it doesn't go that way what, 
like I, I just find that to be a very interesting observation. That's actually all right. So there's no question in, in my mind, at least, I certainly can't think of another example that Paul had more problems with the church in Corinth than any other congregation. I mean, it's known as like, it's the Las Vegas church. It's the Sin City church, right? Yeah, that's that's the nature of of Corinth, right? Because you have all these people traveling in in and out of the city. But the church itself gave Paul some serious problems. And and Mm -hmm. we're going to get into it a little bit as we go further, you know, why there's such great conflict. We've already set the stage a little bit. It's the patronage, it's the elite, and they're not wanting to um, kind of, get rid of or lay down their power and their control. And they're going to cause some serious, con- I mean, like we're talking some mm-hmm. serious, serious heartache. This is nasty serious, stuff serious that they're conflict. involved in. But let's go back even further in first Corinthians. Obviously the only place you can go is to verse one. Mm-hmm. And look how Paul introduces himself in verse one. Paul calls an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Mm-hmm. Like, look, I'm an apostle and I was called as one by Jesus Christ, or as an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. And you don't find that in any of all the, of Paul's other letters. Mm-hmm. In fact, oftentimes Paul doesn't even call himself an apostle in his no. letters. He's he seems Paul, to only he, he, he seems to do it though when he's trying to when he needs to establish something. That's it's like right. when Dad comes into the room and says, "Like, okay, guys, this is the serious talk." That's right. Because so what's happening in Corinth, of course, is some serious divisions. Let's go ahead and skip down, uh, verse uh, eleven. I've been informed concerning uh, you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you, or divisions, depending on how you translate it. Uh, now I mean this, verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that each of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, or Cephas, and I'm of Christ. Now, Apollos was probably the pastor of the congregation. Paul, of course, is the missionary, the apostle, kind of establishing the church. Cephas is mm-hmm. Peter's mm-hmm. Jewish name. Right, Peter is of course a Greek name, so the same name. Cephas um, or Cephas is his Jewish name, and I'm of Christ. So you can see the the Jewish Christians in the community. We follow we follow Peter. Some others are saying, well, we follow Apollos. So others like, no, no, Paul's our founding pastor. That's who we, we follow. Others are like, I'm so, and we might think, oh, the best one here is that I'm of Jesus. It's like, mm-hmm. no, you're being divisive too. We don't we don't do that stuff that you guys do. We we only follow Jesus. And Paul goes on to say, look, has Christ been divided? This is verse 13. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you. Uh, Well, maybe Crispus and Gaius. Um, (laughs) So that none of you would say that you were baptized in my name. And by the way, now look at verse 19, 16. It's like, oh yeah, I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know if I baptize anybody else. And so you can see that Paul's defending his apostolic credentials. Because what's Mm -hmm. happening is, if you follow Cephas, then your answer is, Peter is one of the 12. I mean, is, is Paul even really an apostle? I mean, there's only 12 apostles. Paul's really not even an apostle. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's going to say that Jesus appeared to me. Mm-hmm. And this will be a significant issue as we continue in the 2 Corinthians. That They're challenging Paul and saying, well, how can we undermine his, his uh, claims? I know what we'll do. We'll just stop him out of the root. You know, your degrees aren't valid. Or you went to a, an online account, a, a, mm-hmm. a institution or... Uh, it's it's an honorary degree. You don't even have yeah. a, a real PhD, you know, or you only got the job because your dad owned the company. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and so the answer is, well, you're not an apostle. And so Paul he begins by saying, I'm an apostle by the will of God. And so, yeah, but he does. Interestingly, he goes on to, here's your thing. Let me give you thanks. And he often begins, I thank God through Jesus Christ for, for you all, my prayers that and he gives thanks, but look what he gives thanks for. You guys, by the way, you are enriched in all speech and all knowledge, okay? which is certainly going to be the issues of chapters of 12, 13, and 14, the spiritual gifts. They were claiming to be, some were claiming to be better than Paul or mm-hmm. elite or undermining Paul's authority because, well, we have spiritual gifts. And, and Paul is going to talk about the unity of the church and a lot of spiritual gifts. And like, yeah, yeah, you did have spiritual gifts. That, that's great. Um, but then verse 10, I exhort you, brothers that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And just for a second here, and we'll go back to uh, kind of covering chapter one in a second, but skip to chapter three for a minute and uh, and notice chapter three, verse 16. Do you not know, and that'll be a key phrase in, in this letter that Paul's going to say, don't you guys know this? And what Paul does when he says, do you not know? He's like, you should know this, but the fact that you live this way means you don't know this. Hmm. So it's something that you should know and that you claim to know, but your life tells us that you don't actually know this. Hmm. 
So verse 16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? If any person destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Oh, we got something serious going on because Paul's like, he's not not pulling any punches here. Mm -hmm. You are the temple of God, and I think we get to chapter eleven. Your meanings do more harm than good because you're shaming the you're shaming those who have nothing. So, we talked about the social distinctions that were happening between the the you know the rich and how they were abusing that. But that's not the only thing that is being addressed here. You also have an issue with the fact that you're preaching a gospel in the Roman world. And it's this Christian gospel is about Israel's Messiah, this Jewish man who is crucified. That's right. And so there's there's two things here. So let's just deal with one of them first. And that is because you can literally build one thing at a time. Anyways, even if you want to I can. Yeah, and he will take yeah. over. Okay. Um, yeah, we're really good at that. But uh, by, at the end of the day, by the way, we get nothing done. No, no. Right? But we I did a whole bunch doing, of things. We're doing like seven things, but yeah. none of them actually get finished. Uh, right? And it's like, why did I pick up my phone to text somebody? Yep. Who was I going to text? I have no idea. But so, my fantasy right. football team's updated. <laughs> oh, that's right. I did, I did get, oh, that, I should probably do that while I have my phone in my hand. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very good. All right, so... Um, Paul notes in chapter 1, verse 23, he says, the message of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. Let's actually read 1 Corinthians 1. I don't know if you want to read it or not, Vinny. Sure. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's look at verses 18 through 31. So if you have your Bibles at home, and if you don't, get them out. What are you doing? <laughs> Especially if you're driving. Out. Make sure to get your Bible out yeah, while you're yeah, driving. Exactly. Well, you should have it memorized if you're driving the car <laughs> yeah. by now. Right, so 1 exactly. Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. All right. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the, wor- in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and follies to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Very good. Thank you. So we have two things going on here. One of the problems is the message itself. And that is the message itself is a stumbling block to the Jews. And it's a stumbling block to the Jews because it's about a crucified Messiah. The idea was God's Messiah has come and it was Jesus and he died by crucifixion. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, it says, Cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. And when we get to the book of Galatians, we'll note that Paul literally quotes that verse by saying, yeah, Jesus was hung on a tree. So there's no question that the early Christians acknowledged that Jesus' death by crucifixion falls under the curse of Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. Namely that if you're hung on a tree, you're cursed. So for the Jews are like, well, a cursed Messiah is an oxymoron, right? Because Messiah is the one who's anointed by God. But he's cursed by God. So you can't be both anointed by God and cursed by God. So the the gospel message of a crucified Messiah is a stumbling block to the Jews. But it's foolishness to the Greeks Mm -hmm. because it's about a person who died by crucifixion, which is reserved for the worst known offenders. In other words, the early Christians were preaching that their Lord was some lowlife who died the most despicable form of death at the hands of the Romans. Not only, by the way, was he was Jewish, Mm -hmm. which obviously is not going to be even well respected by the in, in the Roman world either. So Paul responds by saying, you know what? Here's the reality. The foolishness, and what appears to you to be foolishness, that we preach a Jewish man who died by crucifixion at the hands of Rome is actually salvation to those who believe. Hmm. And he says the wisdom of God, and when he says that, he means the cross. Maybe foolishness to you, 
But in verse 24, it says, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. And again, this kind of goes back to the contrast that we've discussed many times and we'll continue to discuss between the way the kingdoms of the world work and the way the kingdom of God works. The kingdoms of the world work by power and wealth and um, oppression and military might, militarism, and the kingdom of God works by sacrifice, sacrificial love for the sake of the other, right? Humility and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And Paul's answer is, okay, that's the power of God and the wisdom of God. So this is central now to the entire argument of 1 Corinthians. So understand the fact that, you know, we've talked before about how an author will frame a, a passage or a section in the Gospel of Matthew, his name shall be Emmanuel, uh, God with us. And then the Gospel ends at the, the last time of the Matthew 28 says, and lo, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. This framing or this inclusio is the way a, a, an author would give you, hey, this is my main point. Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians is, is framed by references to the resurrection or the cross and the resurrection, chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. And then, of course, chapter 15, the entire chapter is about the resurrection and, and the cross and the resurrection. Jesus's crucifixion is fundamentally opposed to the Roman system and its emphasis on the noble births and power and wealth and status and public office. They simply can't go together. As I said before, this is what the, the wealthy and the powerful are kind of reckoning with. So um, there's a man... Um, named Tom Holland, who wrote a book called Dominion, and he cited a scholar, Nassim Talib, who says this. He said, quote, the Greco-Romans despised the feeble, the poor, the sick, and the disabled. Christianity glorified the weak, the downtrodden, and the untouchable, and does that all the way to the top of the pecking order. While ancient gods could have had their share of travails and difficulties, they remained in the special class of gods. But Jesus was the first ancient deity who suffered the punishment of the slave, mm. the lowest ranking member of the human race. And the sect that succeeded him generalized such glorification of suffering. Dying as an inferior is more magnificent than living as the mighty. The mm. Romans were befuddled to see members of that sect use the symbol of the cross, the punishment for slaves. It had to be some type of a joke in their eyes. So this is kind of the, the first major conflict, and that is the gospel itself was not honorable. So if this whole system is established by honor and, and esteem and mm -hmm. uh, regard and uh, for the sake of, of the powerful or whatever, in a society that honored the, that was based on honor or whatever, the Christian gospel has no appeal. Mm. So isn't there also an issue with just, we've talked about Paul and his credentials, but they have an issue with how Paul conducted himself and they're kind of ashamed of him. Yes. Okay. So this is the second part. So the first part was the message itself that was that was preached. Um, but another important understanding of the Greco-Roman culture, especially for understanding this passage and even uh, the rest of the, the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, is that Paul refused to receive the support of any patrons. He, he would not take support. The idea was if he took support, and it had to be tempting for him because he, you know, he's having to work for his own, his own well-being and make, make a living and preach the gospel and do all these things. The problem was if he took their support, he'd be in their debt, right? Mm -hmm. if, if he takes from them, he has to give back to them. The reason why they gave to Paul was so they can get something back. And any of you that have been in pastoral ministry and church ministry, you know the problem with this. Mm -hmm. And that is if you know who the wealthy are and the wealthy know that you know who they are, they know that they can take control of the church if they want to. Yeah. Uh, and that's why it's, by the way, always wise for a pastor to never know who, who is the yep. one who gives and, who, exactly. uh, and how much they give. Uh, so Paul, however, chose to work as a common laborer. Now, as Paul's message is not only something shameful about a crucified Jesus and a crucified Messiah, but Paul himself is shameful. He's not this elite, upper-class, noble individual, which he could have been, by the way, because he could have went to all these churches and said, hey, by the way, give to me and support my ministry. I'm this great Paul. I'm the apostle. I'm going to go around and preach the gospel to all these nations. And so, but Paul's like, I'm not going to do it. In fact, in chapter, uh, in 2 Corinthians, like, I have a right to be paid. I have a right to take a wife, by the way, says, but I didn't do that. And the reason why he's not doing that is because he knows that you guys are going to have an upper hand on me and you're going to expect something out of me. And I'm not going to do that. The problem, though, again, was that Paul was associating himself with slaves and the poor. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of think, oh, this is just, you know, Paul is just this great, humble man or whatever. But remember, humility was not a virtue in the ancient mm -hmm. world. Nope. It, it's a virtue that's established by Christendom. In the ancient world, you were humble because you were humble. You have no choice but to be humble. It's, it's because you're shameful. And so that's, that's why you're humble. Uh, so what they had in the ancient world, and the other thing that's important to understand is this. They had professional teachers 
or philosophers, and they made their living by even often traveling around and teaching. And they were called rhetoricians, the art of rhetoric. And what happened is these professionals were really well-trained in the art of rhetoric. They spoke a certain way. They behaved themselves a certain way. They conducted themselves a certain way. And so what people would do, they go, well, I follow this teacher. And someone mm -hmm. says, I follow that teacher. And that's what Paul's like. Paul's like, look, you can't do that. You're bringing division in the body of Christ. And the idea is like, well, we follow this teacher. He's more honorable than you. And we follow that teacher. No, he's more honorable than you. What happened was rhetoric or being a rhetorician was extremely important. Because remember, think this is like high class, like going to the opera. And so what happened was, if you were a certain a rhetorician and, and you made your living this way, then you had to show yourself to be better than somebody else that came into town last week or the guy that's coming into town next week. And the way it works is you prove your education and your talent and your skill and that you belong. And the way it worked, we do this a little bit, but not completely, was the better you were, the better speaker you were, the better presentation that, that you were, was all based on the amount of adulation that you received. The, the more applause you got, the more laughter you got, mm -hmm. the more that showed that you are good. In other words, it's not based on your content. Mm -hmm. I mean, content might be a part of it, but it wasn't. What was more important was the way people responded to what you said. Your I mean, argument, that, that, in fact, that's yeah. literally describing our entire, I wouldn't even say just political climate, but that's the religious climate as well. I mean, you, you, whether you see the, the, the sermon vignettes on, you know, Instagram or Facebook of the popular preachers, oftentimes they're not saying a thing, but it's the hype, right? And, and same thing at, from a political rally, there's no substance there, but it's all the hype that money could buy. <laughs> Yes, I would say that Rome had this mastered, however. Mm -hmm, not, not mm -hmm. about a lot of modern day politicians, they are really well skilled on how to do rhetoric. Ab absolutely, absolutely. A absolutely. And they're yeah. trained on this. Here's mm -hmm. how you speak. You say yep. this, you don't say this. And they're yep. reading from a, a monitor, so they only say what they're supposed to say. Yeah. So these these uh, rhetoricians then, and they were obsessively concerned with their reputation and their status in the eyes of others. They had to. And the goal then was to gain applause, and then that showed them to be honorable. So now here's the, here's the deal. You got this honorable teacher in the city. Oh, that's our teacher. So Paul's out there, however, and he's working as a leather worker, as a common mm -hmm. slave, as a common servant, as a common laborer. And his message is about a crucified Jesus in, who died at the hands of Rome. Uh, Paul, you're not helping us. Now, the poor were like, this is incredible because... Paul's elevating the status of the poor and he's elevating the status on the marginal. Jesus did that. So this is this message is not a problem for them. It's a problem for the elite mm -hmm. because they can't go and say, that's the guy we follow. We listen to his teachings, which is what they're doing. Paul is our apostle because Paul is a common laborer who won't follow the rules and do things the way they the way they did things. Mm -hmm. And so this is a major problem. So um, Ben Witherington, one of the uh, more prominent New Testament scholars, says this. He says, Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. The Corinthian people lived with an honor-shame cultural orientation where public recognition was often more important than facts. In such a culture, a person's sense of worth is based on recognition by others of one's accomplishments, hence the self-promoting public inscriptions. So this is the context then of the passage that you read earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 10 through 17, where Paul's like, uh, look, guys, I'm not playing that game. Uh, I'm not following these rules. And your division is seriously, seriously problematic. So what is Paul getting at in chapter 2 then, verses 1 through 5? Well, this is exactly the kind of the same point then, right? Do you want to read it or do you want me to? Sure. Yeah, I can. Okay. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians. And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, we would include, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible. But in my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yeah. So you see what's happening? 
my preaching was not, I like your translation, in implausible words of wisdom, I think it says. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine's, mine's New American Standard says, not in persuasive words of wisdom. Mm-hmm. The idea is I, I'm not using the rhetoric and the rhetoricians of and the skill of speaking in order to gain a, an adulation. I'm simply speaking to you the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. So verse two, I was determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But remember, him crucified, he established in chapter one, is foolishness and it's a stumbling block. That's all I wanted to know. But look at verse five now. He says, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And it was your faith, if it was because of the skill of my preaching, might simply be because, well, that's what everybody else was doing. And wow, that was awesome and made me laugh a whole lot. I really appreciate what he, what he had to say. I was like, no, I want your faith to rest in the power of God. Hmm. So yeah, really significant then, isn't it? So let's sum this up as we reflect on the first several, you know, uh, chapters of First Corinthians. What would you say that pro- Paul's primary concern was? Yeah, I think Paul's main concern is that the failure of God's people to live up to their calling. Uh, Jesus and the gospel is a gospel of a crucified Lord who died and was resurrected that we might have life. And we are called to imitate him in sacrificial living. And this means that we are willing to give and surrender and sacrifice that others might have. And this presents a problem in our world, all kinds of reasons why we we justify that. And I think we just need to wrestle with that. And I'm not saying that those reasons are wrong or or whatever, but we use them to justify um, not giving and not serving. And the reality is that Paul's work associated him with the slaves and with the poor. And this disturbed the people in Corinth. Paul's answer is to do something otherwise is to contradict the gospel and to contradict the message. I just look at this and go, you know, this is really typical of the way our churches do things. Yeah. Right? I mean, we, uh, you know, the whole idea of the seeker church. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying that that's bad, but I think it's led to, I wrote this somewhere. I don't think I actually published the manuscript or yet. I'm considering, still considering publishing the manuscript at some point in time. But I, I said something along the lines of, you know, we invited them in with candy and then we gave them green, green beans, Yeah, which for me, green beans are like vulgar and disgusting. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the idea of, of the, uh, of the metaphor there. We invite you in with candy. Oh, it's going to be great, great, great. great. And, oh, and by the way, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. Mm-hmm. Now, what most churches do is they just don't even preach that part. And that is, oh, come here because not only is it great, we're gonna have a good time. we got a great worship band. we got a great, you know, um, video and da, 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 da. But uh, Jesus is going to take care of all of your problems and everything's going to get better. And it's like, well, yeah, as we discussed, God's going to work all things for the good of those who love him, but that's uh, eschatological and yeah. not necessarily in the here and now. So, yeah. Well, and the thing that I'm hearing is we oftentimes, especially in the Protestant church, don't know what to do with Paul because we read Jesus and it seems like all the things that you were describing in terms of caring for one another and lowering yourself and all that, that's that's a Jesus thing. But then Paul's mm-hmm. doing this other thing. And oftentimes it's wrapped up in he's just teaching justification by faith. Yeah, alone. Yeah, and, yeah. and as someone who's it, yeah, and, and as someone who's in the reformed Baptist community, like I like I, I think that's an important thing. But this is goes back to the very beginning of what we talked about in, in tonight into this podcast which is knowing the cultural background and filling in the gaps where if you start seeing those other things knowing how something like patronage works knowing the hierarchy that's existing here then you can actually start seeing what paul is doing and say oh paul's actually just contextualizing exactly what jesus was doing yeah, yeah. he's not doing this yeah, completely yeah, yeah. different thing yeah, yeah. there's continuity there it's not this what do i do with paul that's right that's right and you know on the other side Paul is not simply just going out there trying to preach justice for the no. sake of justice sake. It's this is what the kingdom of God looks yeah. like and what it means to be an image bearer of God. To rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and to subdue the earth is to imitate Jesus and sacrificial surrender of one's very life, if necessary, for the sake of the other. Mm. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, that probably won't make you a very popular leader on a mass scale. It probably won't get you elected to political offices. It probably won't work too well as a CEO of of a major corporation. You know, I think we just should, we should lower the price on our product because the poor (laughs) really can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And and I know that's going to cut all of you guys here on the board, but we're just going to take pay cuts. No, no, it's not going to work. 
It's not going to work in mega churches, you know, and um, it's not going to work um, in, by the way, a lot of small churches to just want to hear a gospel of how I can still be comfortable yep. in the way I'm living. Yep. You know, um, the gospel is, you know, as David Platt says, is, is radical. Yeah. And John Stott had said radical disciple. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and John Stott also uses terms like countercultural, all these yeah. terms that should be divided, like disruptive to how we think about these things. It right. uh, should be completely different. So, yeah. Hey, yeah. good stuff. Can't wait to spend, uh, I guess we're not going to spend nine weeks on this or however long we did on Romans. Well, but... it, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't rate. written all of the, the notes for it yet. We'll see how it yeah. goes. Because this, no. is, this is just, this is really central stuff. Yeah. So, and so yeah. I'm assuming next week we're going to get, uh, we'll start working through the text a little exactly. bit more. We'll, we'll get in the three, four, five, six, and then uh, we'll get into the particular issues of seven, eight, nine and following. So, yeah. Perfect. All right, everyone. Catch you guys later. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.